Hello everyone, it's June 28, 2022, so SLS is ready to go, I guess. The last white dress wasn't a complete success, but apparently it's good enough because NASA probably won't do another, so no more rehearsing, time for the real thing, maybe by the end of the year, we'll see. Anyway, the show's ready to go, so lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 365 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Um, there's not much to talk about just yet, but I find it interesting that apparently that Cygnus spacecraft did do a station reboost, and uh, there's nothing in space news about it. Um, just one article. What was it from CNET? I think we found. Mm. And uh, um, then there was another one stating that it was a successful firing. So apparently, and I'm guessing by the dates that they were published, that they made a first attempt on like the 21st or the 20th and it didn't work it fired for just five seconds and then about five days later they tried again and they were successful Mm. um so they had some kind of a problem but it was a small one i believe nasa said immediately that they knew what was wrong and that they could probably fix it and they did but uh that's the best that i can figure out so i figured we would just mention that since there's not much else to mention but they did do a station reboost which is pretty cool and they according to a nasa blog it, the apogee was raised by one tenth of a mile and the the perigee by five tenths or i mm. guess half a mile so not a lot there i mean for some reason i had in my head that it was like several miles or kilometers um but i guess mm. they just do smaller ones well and especially for the the first use of of a spacecraft like cygnus yeah, like sure yeah. yeah and and i think just i always like for context uh cygnus looks like it's uh cygnus 17 is at the the uh, nader side of uh node mm-hmm. 1 so it's really yeah, right so- it looks it's got to be close to the center of mass of the whole station um, yeah, but you got to reorient station to use it. Um, and mm-hmm. real quick, I, I want to point out this is the first operational use of Cygnus, but they tested it back in 2018. So don't don't at me. So in the news, the wet dress rehearsal for SLS. So we're getting closer now. So there will there will be no more wet dress rehearsals, right? Yeah, they they've decided that they're gonna push to push on to the actual uh, Artemis 1 mission now. Um, we don't know when, but they're going to do it. We'd mentioned it a couple weeks ago. This is despite the fact that the last wet dress rehearsal didn't go entirely to plan. So, which I think... Um, I think it was you, Ben, who was kind of surprised about that, or maybe, or maybe it was me. I don't remember, but I found it, you know, a, a little bit odd that they would have some issues and then say, "Yeah, good enough. Let's go ahead and launch this thing." So, because apparently, in their view, these were fairly minor problems, uh, and uh, they thought yeah. they could proceed. Well, the the way that they're thinking about it is um, they they want to test all of these critical operations. Uh, at least once. And it would be best to test them all on the same day, you know, in a, in a dress rehearsal. But as long as the each procedure and component has been tested in a way that they think is, you know, satisfactory, they're kind of okay with just saying, yeah, good enough, let's go. So yeah, like, like you said, um, this test that we're talking about is uh, the one that happened on Monday, the 20th. Um, and it, it didn't get down to T minus 9.3 is I think what it's supposed to get down to. Yeah. T minus 9.3. Um, instead it ended at T minus 29 seconds. And the reason for them ending it early is, is actually kind of interesting. Um, but long story short, um, there is one more component that they need to test that, uh, presumably they will have finished that by the time that we're recording, uh, Sunday afternoon, but they they did have to go and and do one additional test 
uh, before they roll back to the VAB. But uh, other mm. than that, they, they're pretty happy with the coverage that they've gotten so far. So what happened here was uh, a bleed line issue. So there are bleed lines in the uh, liquid hydrogen tail service mast. And so there's a, a hose and a quick disconnect that connect to the core stage. And um, during the countdown, SLS is flowing liquid hydrogen through the engines to chill them down. They call it thermal conditioning. Um, and then once it's gone through the engine, you have to do something with it. You can't put it back in the tanks. There's just not the plumbing for that. Uh, you can't just dump it out the bottom of the engine because we don't like hydrogen building up. So instead they have uh, a bleed line where they can um, flow the liquid hydrogen through the engine instead of pushing it all the way into the uh, combustion chamber, they can toggle a valve and um, push it out through this bleed line. And so then the tail service mass collects it and stores it. I, I can't imagine that it gets dumped right back into the tanks. Uh, they probably want to clean it and do all sorts of things that, you know, uh, liquid or unliquify it. <laughs> uh, so mm -hmm. it probably is, is just discarded one way or the other, but, um, there was a leak in this bleed line and it was on the core side stage of the quick disconnect, which, which is a little troubling. Uh, however, it wasn't a, a super huge leak. Um, I don't know what the units are, but they said that their launch limit is four units and, uh, it was leaking at 3.4 units whatever that unit is it's probably you know milliliters per second or something like that and so it turns out that the the teflon seal inside this quick disconnect hasn't been changed since that massive green run campaign back at stennis that that should be a familiar name um, and they're thinking you know what <laughs> this seal has been beat to hell like uh like most seals aren't going to be so it's probably just the mm. seal being old they're just going to replace it. They're also considering replacing additional seals, um, even though they haven't leaked. Just, you know, if this one's leaking, we'll probably just replace them all. It's just Teflon. It's cheap. Um, and so that that should be fine. Even if this doesn't solve the leak, though, uh, they're still good to launch um, with, a, with a leak of 3.4 leak units, um, yeah. whatever, <laughs> whatever that is. So what they did um, was, you know, they saw this leak. They're like, you know, it's not going to violate our our launch our, our launch limit, but we're we're going to go ahead and not tolerate this. So they uh, closed a, a valve somewhere and halted the chill down. Um, I'm assuming that they basically closed the propellant valve upstream of the engine, right? And so when that happens, um, several engine metrics, I believe, not just one, but there are a couple of different data points that uh, wind up violating launch commit criteria. Um, when the, when the engine doesn't chill down. So there's probably temperature, there's probably temperature. Did I say temperature twice? Pressure, temperature, uh, propellant flow, like they're probably a bunch of different things. And yeah. so um, what they did was they actually um, told the ground computers, ignore those metrics, just treat them as if they didn't exist. That's uh, called masking. And they went through their countdown as usual. Now, as part of the countdown, they uh, demonstrated something they really wanted to be able to demonstrate, which is the handoff of the countdown control from the ground computers to the flight computers. Um, and that's something that you, I'm assuming, something that you can only really validate during an actual countdown. All of the things that can go wrong with that are dependent on time. You can't just press a button and, and test it. So the flight computers don't support 
uh, this, this masking technique, variable masking or metric va- masking. I don't know what they call it, but the flight computers, as you might expect, they should be <laughs> refuse to ignore data. That's, that's sounds like the, the right way to design those things. So, um, when they get to the part of the countdown, when those, uh, commit criteria come into effect, that's T minus 29 seconds, the criteria come into effect, the sensors are pulled, and the criteria are immediately violated. So the flight computers um, shut down the countdown sequence. And so this is kind of one of those successful failures. Um, they got to demonstrate the, the handoff. They even got to demonstrate the the launch computer or the, the flight computers actually doing their thing. So like as if you needed an extra validation that they were in control, <laughs> you know, they, they really <laughs> were able to, to do this. There was another issue that, uh, that cropped up. Uh, they called it uh, a video playback issue. There's a, a video playback unit on board um, and it failed somehow. I, I don't know why this is critical for launch, but it, they identified it as something they need to work. Um, luckily uh, they have a contingency procedure um, I think they basically have an expected failure mode that that is just going to happen sometimes or, or was viewed as likely to happen. So they have a procedure already in place. And uh, if this had happened during a real launch, they would have had a hold at T minus six. Um, and then they would have executed their pre-planned actions and then released, uh, released the countdown. Um, and they're, they talk, NASA talks about it as if it's, you know, a, a nice, uh, sure thing. You know, this is a fix that we are confident is going to work. But because they uh, saw this happen, they have uh, steps. They're going to try and fix it um, when they're back in the VAB so that it won't be an issue down the line. So I wonder if it was just like, we have two different ways we can do this. Uh, one or either one could fail. Let's pick the one, you know, let's just pick one. If it doesn't work, we've got a fix. And then we can always swap over to the other option. Um, total speculation here, but like that, that kind of seems to be the, the way that they're talking about it. So this, uh, this one final test that they have to go through is, is really interesting, um, to, to nerds like me. Uh, it's the SRB HPU hot fire test. So the SRBs are the solid rocket boosters. The HPU is the hydraulic power unit. And they are going to do a hot fire test of this. So I, I don't know much about the SRBs on SLS, but I do know a decent amount about the SRBs on STS shuttle. So that's kind of what I'm going to go back to, um, to talk about these guys. Well, you're in luck. Yes, exactly. They're, they're, <laughs> they're they are the well documented <laughs> precisely. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are some small changes, but right. That's the whole thing's It's just a uh, five segment. SRB, I think. Right. And, and the big critical systems they're going to want to keep as, as unchanged as possible, right? That's my understanding, yeah. The HPUs provide hydraulic power to actuate the thrust vector, the thrust vector control on the SRBs. This is really, really important. The SRBs provide 80% of the control authority through the first stage of flight. Um, we really, really need these SRBs to work. Um, the, the, it's interesting. The SRB nozzle actuation, that gimbal, is 1% of the gimbal range 
of the RS-25, um, the space shuttle main engine. It's 10% of the range, but it's 80% of the control authority. So um, to, to actually power these things, they have um, power units that burn hydrazine um, to provide hydraulic pressure. And so since it's burning hydrazine, you can imagine that uh, this is a fairly complicated bit of machinery. Um, it has turbines that are spun by the burning hydrazine. And the startup sequence is... Uh, a little tricky, actually, um, believe it, <laughs> believe it or not. So when you start them up, you actually need to allow the turbine speeds to run faster, to run higher than they would during normal operation. And so, um, during normal flight, you have a, a computer that's looking at the turbine speeds and a bunch of other things and is determining what throttle to set, you know, how much, um, how much propellant to consume and all, all these different things. And so to be able to start these things up in the first place, they actually had to waive a design requirement. Uh, there's a thing called the launch data bus, which is basically the, the internal internet uh, inside uh, shuttle in, in particular. I don't want to talk about uh, SLS if I'm not able to, to confirm these connections. But inside Shuttle, they had um, the, the LDB where, where they could have different components talking to different components and they could have commands issued from the ground or from the crew um, actually make their way to the components that needed to receive those commands. And so one of the design requirements uh, for the LDB was that transactions on that bus um, needed to be composed of a single command so that uh, the command could be interrupted or altered in you know this real-time environment. And they actually had to waive that requirement so they could send multiple commands in a single uh, LDB transaction. And I'm not 100% sure exactly what those commands were, but I believe that they were bringing um, this special uh, control logic into place issuing the startup command and then taking the control logic back offline or, or something related to that. So the, the control logic allows uh, alternate control configurations that, that allow uh, these higher turbine speeds and, and different rules uh, that apply during startup rather than during flight. And so it turns out that because they wound up altering the the language or the, the rules for the LDB commands, it resulted in a requirement for different timing than would normally be required. And, and this is networking. So it starts getting really complicated really quickly. Um, especially without diagrams. But during um, at the the first was it the first attempt of STS one one of the launch attempts for STS one they actually violated um, a launch commit criteria because uh, the control logic handoff wasn't handled properly. They brought the flight logic back online too early and it went, oh crap, these turbines are running way faster than they should and shut everything down. Mm. Um, uh, it's it's just it's so complicated and, and wonderful. Like uh, that kind of thing is I, I'm totally fine with discovering that during a launch. Like that's the kind of thing that wet dress rehearsals are designed to find. And fixing that is something that you can only fix after you found it during a launch attempt or a wet dress rehearsal. It's one of the things that it's okay to, to scrub a launch for. There are other things that you're like, Ooh, that should have been caught ahead of time, but this seems like one that's, 
very reasonable. And it's integration, right? You got to have all the parts working together. Okay. So um, I don't know what time they actually bring up the, the HPUs, but for shuttle, they did a gimbal test at T minus 21. And that is after the abort, which the, the wet dress rehearsal abort, which was at T minus 29 seconds. So I'm assuming that the HPUs are brought up just before the gimbal test. So maybe the, the HPUs are brought up at T minus 25 seconds and they do the gimbal test at T minus 21. But either way, uh, we aborted at 29 seconds. So none of this got tested. Um, so actually doing this hot fire test and, and let me, be really clear, the hot fire test is for the HPU hydrazine uh, engine, not the SRB engine. They're not going to light these SRBs on the pad. That would be very bad. Um, but uh, doing this hot fire test is not like an actual requirement that's on the books that has to happen before launch, but it's um, an engineering test that maybe <laughs> I'm a little surprised isn't on the books. Seems like a really good idea. NASA thinks it's a really good idea. They're going to do it. And so the hot fire test is scheduled for, or was scheduled for Friday, maybe lapping a little bit into early Saturday morning. Uh, again, we're recording this on Sunday. So that should have already happened. Um, then they'll have to detank the hydrazine. Um, and that was scheduled uh, to start Saturday or maybe Sunday morning today. Um, and it's supposed to conclude at least or at latest uh, tomorrow. I, th I think like tomorrow morning-ish. Then they're going to be rolling back to the VAB on July 1st. And that's, you know, that's a long time. It's like 12 hours worth of work, but um, they'll get back to the VAB. Then they've got uh, six to eight weeks planned to do all the prep work uh, before they roll out again, that that work is going to include fixing the the video playback unit issue. Um, it's going to include replacing at least the liquid hydrogen uh, bleed seal, maybe some other seals. Um, and then after they get all that done, uh, they'll be ready to do the Artemis one rollout. It's not clear when they're actually going to. Uh, do their first A1 launch attempt. Um, they're saying that it should, the, the schedule decision should be announced in the next two weeks or so. And they're saying that an August timeframe has not yet been ruled out. Uh, August is the, the primary launch window that they've been looking at this whole time. Um, they, it may get pushed back into next year, but you know, we're not going to know for the next two or three weeks. Yep. Well, that was really cool. Yeah. I mean, there's way more information there than I expected, right? Yeah. You found some stuff that I didn't even know needed to be found, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, specifically the gimbal test. And I mean, they talk about the APUs on shuttle all the time, but I'd never heard of these HPUs on the boosters. You know, I, it's funny. I, I think I had, it's one of those things that kind of comes up in my mind, like if we're talking about it and then I forget to ask the, or look into it, like how do they gimbal those things? Because I was just thinking before this, how do you move them? You know, like, yeah, so HPUs powered by hydrazine, you said it was 1% of the gimbal range of yeah. the shuttle engines. Yeah, in, in degrees. Yeah, and it has 80% of the control authority. That's that's pretty crazy. Yeah, man. The uh, the SRBs are are beasts. I mean, they they just have mm -hmm. so much thrust. Um, but yeah, I, I love the confusing uh, the confusing acronym. HPU is hydraulic power unit, but it runs on hydrazine, and so you might confuse mm -hmm. the H for uh, hydrazine, but it's not like the old 
transatlantic abort. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Where it's really transoceanic abort. The APUs run on on hydrazine though, right? So it's kind of a mm. reversal there, I suppose. The, wait, the, did you say the APUs run on hydrazine? The yeah, APUs run they? on hydrazine. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm thinking the fuel cells. I actually learned a fun little rule of thumb, I guess, uh, last or just a few days ago, because we were doing, uh, I don't know if you remember, last year, we did some uh, solid motor firings out in the desert as part oh, okay. of the kind of grant that I'm on. And so we did that, you know, last week. And uh, the guy who owns this place, uh, Rick, was basically saying that if you if your engine has only one axis uh, gimbling, uh, like a Soyuz, for example, you give them basically twice the range than you would give if you had two axis TVC on a different engine. Yeah, um, that sounds about right. And then uh, Leon in the chat uh, linked us to a tweet, and it looks like, yes, they did successfully do the hot fire test yesterday saturday the 25th awesome so i was just caught up on how do you maneuver a rocket if it only has one axis of more than one motion? engine <laughs> yep. okay okay i was i was yeah. kind of thinking that i was like there has to be another engine and i guess it's offset by 90 degrees right yep yeah. well yeah. or but you look at the base of a soyuz there's like a hundred nozzles staring at you it's ridiculous yeah and they all gimbal towards the center i believe not radial or not ah, they gimbal radially radial. not I don't yep. know, whatever, tangentially. Cartesianally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I see what you mean. I think they do gimbal in a Cartesian fashion, but the Cartesian axis is aligned with the X, Y, and the the they pick X or Y based on the closest one to the center. Um, mm. It's not like they all gimbal directly towards the center. Some of them are offset because they have they're not all radially aligned. Oh, Mike in the chat says that Firefly Alpha is the other way around. So Firefly Alpha has four Reaver engines. And so in that case, you know, if you've got, how many engines does Soyuz have? I don't know off the top of my head. It's, is it four per booster? No, it's, it's like six per booster or something. I'm seeing four nozzles and then smaller, like, so there's four big nozzles per strap-on or core booster. And then there's two smaller ones on the strap-ons and then four of these smaller ones on the interior. Right. Yeah. So I'm counting 16 plus eight plus four. So that's, that's a ton. And so they can just, you can pick a gimbal configuration. You're good. Uh, Firefly Alpha, since it only has four, there aren't that many configurations that really work. You know that you need to have, um, two engines, uh, gimbling in one direction. And then the other two need to be offset by 90 degrees. And the way that that winds up working out, um, I believe to give them the widest gimbal range without interfering is they kind of alternate, right? So X, Y, X, Y, if you're going around clockwise or whatever. And so that puts them in this like tangential uh, configuration uh, where the, I, I think they're, the way that Mike is describing it, it sounds like they're 45 degrees off of the radial angle. Oh, and then Colin says the smaller attitude control nozzles on Soyuz, they do rotate tan tangentially. So I was wrong. So they don't, uh, they don't actuate radially. They do it tangentially. Okay, cool. Mm, okay. Um, so the, so I remember what I, was, I remember what I was going to say. The other way you could do it is if you only have one engine and one control axis, that's okay. As long as it's spin stabilized to some extent, if you put those fins on, if you got aerodynamic control surfaces that spin it just a little bit, it's okay. You just have to time 
your thrust vector control <laughs> movements with the rotation. I mean, it sounds like it's a lot worse of a problem to solve, but oh, wow. <laughs> you could do it. Yeah. I don't know if anybody's done it, but you could do it. All right, so this week, let's do three short and sweets. And what is the first one, Dennis? Psyche launch delayed to 2023. NASA announced that there will not be enough time to complete testing of the Psyche spacecraft software before this year's launch window closes. The launch has already been delayed from August 1st because of this testing issue. The problem doesn't lie with Psyche's GNC software itself, but rather the testbed used to simulate the spacecraft. The testbed is a combination of hardware and software intended to make a replica of the flight system on which you can then run the software for testing. The mission will be delayed until at least mid-2023. And then next up, Atoms for Space. NASA and the U.S. Department of Energy have selected three companies for development of nuclear fission systems that could power infrastructure on the moon and possibly beyond. The teams selected are Lockheed Martin, Westinghouse, and Ix, or IX, I'm not sure. Each team will be awarded $5 million to further develop their design concepts for a possible use on the moon as soon as the late 2020s. This would allow NASA to support its Artemis mission with the ultimate goal of of establishing a permanent presence on the moon. These awards are part of a phase one contract, though NASA did not specify if or when there would be a phase two. And finally, Starlink interference from 5G. In a recent letter to the FCC, SpaceX claimed that Dish Network and RS Access published misleading reports in an effort to gain access to the 12 gigahertz band for a terrestrial 5G network that SpaceX says would lead to severe interference for Starlink customers and even total outage up to 74% of the time. Dish and its allies claim usage of this frequency band would have zero impact on such networks, a claim that SpaceX sees as faulty. As a result, SpaceX is urging the FCC to investigate Dish Network and RS Access's research to verify their findings. In turn, Dish Network said its own expert engineers are investigating SpaceX's claim. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. This week we have a really cool correction or, I guess, elaboration from Bill Baobab. Bill Baobab, Baobab, whatever. <laughs> but, I, I've always heard it pronounced ba- Baobab, Baobab. Bill Baobab. And yeah, so I think this was because of, uh, I don't remember if this was spurred by a question that I asked or if you just had the information on hand, Dennis. But basically, we were trying to, we were talking about how this new companion asteroid to the current asteroid that's on the books to be visited, right, by... um. Jeez, I just forgot it again. What's the, what's the name of the spacecraft? I cannot Lucy. see. Lucy. And it's Polymeal. Polymeal? Polymeal. Yes. Yeah, so so Polymeal is one of uh, Lucy's targets. And it recently, uh, they recently discovered a moon around it. And the moon hasn't been named yet, right? So they're still Correct. Gonna, yeah. yeah. They, they, uh, Shaun okay. the Sheep is its kind of nickname right. for now. That's right. And so what, uh, what Bill Baobab basically pointed out, which is great because I, uh, I, I should have mentioned this. And, and I hadn't really thought about it. But um, Ben and I were having a bit of a back and forth uh, about how precisely lined up everything must have been in order for the moon to also uh, get uh, dipped by uh, – or the starlight to also dip when the moon passed in front of it too, right? If, if, if you remember, the way this moon was discovered is that there was a stellar occultation. And so the asteroid plus the moon passed in front of it caused the dips in the – and the light, and we were able to infer that that moon was there in the first place by, you know, it was discovered this way. What Bill's helpfully pointed out is that that starlight is coming from so far away, it's basically all the rays are parallel, essentially. So it's 
effectively casting a shadow on the earth that's the shape of the asteroid. It's kind of like if you if you held a penny, I don't know, six inches above uh, a table and then shined a flashlight directly down on it, the size of the penny's shadow is the same size as the penny itself um, when the rays are all, you know, parallel like that. So on top of that, you get, if you're looking at it from different locations on the earth, right? Then you can run what are these, what are called chords, which are lines uh, across uh, the asteroid. So if you picture the asteroid passing in front of the star, it's almost like you could take different slices through the asteroid, parallel slices, um, depending on where you are exactly. And so I mean, not, you know, on different parts of the earth, you got, you got to be close enough to, you know, pass in its shadow. But if you're in different parts of its shadow, I guess you can get an idea of the shape. Uh, and the size of the uh, the asteroid. And so um, the upshot is that it didn't have to be the bullseye that Ben and I were thinking <laughs> it must have been in order to be able to pick out a moon, which could have been oriented right in its orbit. Its inclination could have been so different compared to uh, how Palomili was passing in front of that star um, as as, fo as opposed to its direction of motion. But uh, but yeah, no, so, so there is a little bit of wiggle room there. And so it wasn't totally amazing that I was able to do it. And so Bill linked a, a nice uh, paper uh, that looked at the asteroid 90 Antiope. And uh, it, it's just a really cool thing. And it also inspired me to go and try to find that the, the actual discovery paper for Palomili. Mm -hmm. And while I couldn't do that, um, I don't think it's been published yet. Mm. I was able to find uh, at uh, the Southwest Research Institute's website, uh, occultation maps for all of Lucy's targets. Wow. Including... The what I'm assuming so Palmyli has had a couple occultations before, and they they show a map of where it's crossing and everything. And so previously there was an occultation in Senegal and I think Spain, uh, where I, I assume that those weren't the ones that detected the moon because they were last year or earlier. I can't remember details, but there was an occultation on March seventh uh, of Palmyli. Uh, was its most recent one this year, and that one I'm assuming is the one where they found Sean the moon, the moon sheep. And so there's there's really cool maps and things to check out with this. So really go go check out you know Lucy dot slash occultations that HTML. And the link will also be in the show notes. You don't need to type that yeah. URL in. So really cool stuff. Thanks a lot, Bill, for writing in with that. All right, so uh, let's do this week in spaceflight history. And we only have one winner, but we have three other guesses that were incorrect, right? Or maybe not incorrect. I actually don't know. Were these incorrect? Yeah, yeah, they, they were incorrect, but, you know, I still want to give shout-outs. Yeah, get, getting close when only one person got it is is pretty yeah, notable. Yeah. So the one winner was Bill Baobab, which I think we've now established the pronunciation uh, <laughs> from the previous segment. Um, and then shout-outs to Hydrak, the Greek, and uh, Femen or Iron Man, however you want to pronounce that. Well, I like saying Femen. Okay, well, you'd be wrong. <laughs> but for the purposes of a podcast, how it, it's no fun to, to just say Iron Man because then you don't convey the cleverness of uh, eh, the name. <laughs> that, no, that is that is fair. But anyway, all right. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so the clue was a really big eye in the sky so yeah mm -hmm. the the big eye in the sky that i figured would have something to do with a telescope so i i'm guessing i'm right on that count right yes you are and the other guesses were you know clever the uh the ones i want to give the shout outs to um where they were either talking about jupiter um and it's you know great red spot which is like a giant eye on the planet essentially and uh or a noaa uh i forget which number but one of the noahs uh space uh space 
craft, and that one wasn't big enough to be this really big eye in the sky. And so, no, the uh, the telescope I'm talking about was, uh, or the event I'm talking about was the 28th of June, 1979, and it was when a Progress 7 brought the first deployable telescope, the KRT-10, to Salyut 6. And so this one was an interesting piece to try to research since a lot of the information I found was in uh, Russian. Uh, but I think uh, I got a pretty good picture of this really interesting uh, mission and uh, really interesting telescope and piece of history that I had never heard of before. And so hopefully this will be fun. Like I said, this is the event itself was a, a progress launch. And so this Progress 7, as you might infer, was actually the seventh progress ever. So this was a very early flight. This was the original type of progress, uh, the 7K-TG type. And it flew to Salyut 6, which was one of these uh, space stations. And to give you an idea of what Salyut looks like, uh, this is the one that has the uh, same heritage, ultimately, that gave us uh, Zvezda. And so if you picture Zvezda on the Russian orbital segment, right, it's basically got three kind of segments that are all increasing in diameter as you go from the front end of the vehicle to the, the aft end of the vehicle. The aft port is where the progresses would park themselves, and then the uh, Soyuz that was ferrying meat bags would go to the, uh, the, the front port, uh, which is the, uh, the smallest diameter side. And so the progress, it was fairly uneventful, I guess, for the progress itself. It, it docked, it stayed uh, a little less than three weeks, and then it undocked and deorbited. But part of its cargo, in addition, I'm sure, to, you know, food and fuel and supplies, was the KRT-10, which is the, uh, translates to essentially a cosmic radio telescope or space radio telescope. KRT-10, uh, you might also see it written as KPT-10, just because uh, the Cyrillic letter for all, what sounds closest to R in English uh, looks like the letter P in English, but... Of course, it's a different letter altogether. Yeah. So some sources I was able to find by searching for KRT-10, and I was able oh. to find other sources by searching for KPT-10. Yeah, that's um, confusing. Yeah, yeah, it's a little, little bit. Um, that's Cyrillic. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Cyrillic for English speakers. Exactly. That's, that's interpreting Cyrillic letters as Latin letters <laughs> and the problem that that causes, yeah. And so what the 10 stands for is not that this was the 10th radio telescope. Like I said, this was the first one. Um, but... The 10 stands for 10 meters diameter. And so that's the big eye in the sky. This is a 10 meter diameter radio dish, right? We're talking 33 some feet. And uh, on yeah. On a crude vessel. On a crude vessel, yeah. yes. Talk about 70s space flight. <laughs> right, right, right. Yep. This is, uh, it, it was mesh. It was folded. It had to fit in the pro progress, obviously. The mirror itself was 65 kilograms. It had this hexagonal shape to it. And it could, when it was folded, uh, could fit in a uh, 0.5 meter by 0.9 meter space. And so that was small enough that the cosmonauts on board were able to actually, you know, when they were unloading the progress, were able to actually pre-assemble, I suppose, the radio telescope inside the station before deploying it. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so essentially there's, there were three main parts. There was the mirror itself, um, the feed uh, and the struts, and then the... Uh, attachment support structure. 
which this latter bit, I wasn't able to find any diagrams or anything like that, but this uh, support structure did something pretty interesting in terms of deploying the telescope that I'll talk about in a bit. Uh, there was a five meter prototype that was tested on the ground first. Ultimately, this uh, radio telescope would operate at 12 and 72 centimeter wavelengths. So uh, fairly long wavelengths. Now, the way that it worked, I said it's assembled essentially in the station, but it's still folded up. But to, in some way, it's essentially loaded into the aft port of the salute, and I assume making a pressure seal where the uh, or, or somehow they were able to basically uh, set it up, I guess, on the outside of the, the, the salute. Because what would happen is, right, the progress was there for, like I said, just shy of three weeks. So when the progress would undock and start pulling away from the station, then the cosmonaut would give the signal and open up and deploy the radio telescope. And so the telescope was sitting at the aft end of Salyut. Um, and you see pictures uh, showing this, uh, how it's supposed to look. There's a uh, cool little Soviet stamp that'll be in the show notes uh, showing essentially what it looked like. Now, when uh, Bill Baobab uh, tweeted at us, and this is a bit of a mystery, and so I am wondering what uh, you you guys think about this. As the progress pulled away, it was able to take uh, footage, uh, some 1970s level footage, right? Potato cam. But this footage of the Salyut and the deployable uh, KRT-10 radio telescope, and it's not aligned with the axis of the salute at all. It doesn't look like what you would think you would see, or it wasn't what you would expect based on diagrams of what the uh, radio dish, uh, where it's supposed to be, uh, right at the aft end of the progress of the uh, uh, salute. So I don't know. I mean, do you think maybe they just unfurled it and it just kind of unfurls off axis and then would rotate back into its proper spot? Because this image, I don't want to give a spoiler, but this image would make sense if it was taken uh, several weeks later uh, when something happens uh, as part of this uh, radio telescope. But at that point, when the progress was backing off, so you see the salutes at the top, right? And you can even see that the largest diameter part of the salute is closest to the camera. And it looks like it's dangling on it rather than being centered on it, which is what you would it's have It's snagged on one of the docking targets, but I don't understand how that resulted in this sort of geometry. And that's the thing. The snagging on the docking target happens weeks after this picture was taken. Oh, when the, when they were coming into dock the next mission well no that's just it they i don't think there was another mission that came so so what happened was right so that is the exact geometry i would expect if it was snagged on a target but instead you're seeing it from the departing progress which is well before uh, that's a spoiler the telescope ends up getting snagged on the salute when they tried to jettison it later it, it must have been deployed off axis and then either all the pictures are just wrong that show it on axis, or after it was deployed off axis, it kind of then would be moved into place. But that seems weird because they're deploying it from the rear port. That's that's the that's the mystery <laughs> that I that Bill had posed, and I don't have a, a an answer to any better than just guessing about that. But I like that Iron Man in the chat was saying, you know, detailed engineering schematics would be very helpful. I guess a, a, a corollary of this though is that you can actually see this thing <laughs> on orbit, and it's pretty wild to look at. Um, the scale is 
to give you an idea, right, this is 10 meters in diameter. The entire Salute station was 15.8 meters long. So basically a 1.6 to 1 uh, aspect ratio when you compare the two. This, this was a really big eye on the sky. <laughs> My understanding is that it snagged immediately. These photos were taken by Progress 7, and then they worked on it long after Progress 7 had deorbited. And they did a yeah. spacewalk and everything, and they weren't able to fix it. And so they wound up abandoning the station. Oh, well, they didn't abandon the station. Or uh, I'm sorry, they ended up, instead of jettisoning the the telescope the way it's supposed to, they had to cut it off, like cut cut cables yes. and like abandon is the wrong word, but like the scr scrub it, I guess. Yeah. So, but, so here's the thing, like, so I'm the sources that I was reading, at least that, that, that does sound plausible and at least gets the time right. But the sources I'm seeing said that the snag happened during the jettisoning, that it was actually functioning fine hmm. uh, for the first, for, for however many weeks it was, yeah, three weeks or so, until August 9th. But maybe, I mean, maybe the sources are, are off, uh, but at least uh, the Russian wiki entry and then this... Uh, yeah, it, do, it, do, it says the moment the open antenna was shot, four cables caught. So shot, I think, means jettisoned then. Oh, yeah. And then SpaceFact says, uh, examination through the aft-facing ports indicate the antenna was snared on the aft-docking target. Like, mm -hmm. it failed to separate, then it was snared. Right, right. Because, yeah, that's another datum, is that it was dangerous when it snared. And so I don't think they would have, if it snared right away. Yeah. Like That photo couldn't have been taken during EVA, could it? I don't think so. Um, yeah, they're, 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 I think they're far enough away on the other side that that, although maybe... Do you really think they they, they would or have maybe had it's a free float? In, it's in the middle of deployment. That's again my best guess is that, that and that's, in the that's what you process said, yeah. of unfolding and unfurling, yeah, it, it kind of starts off to the side and then eventually gets pulled flush to the back of the station and lined up nicely. Yeah, I don't know. So I figured I'd bounce this <laughs> off y'all mm. all y'all brains too, because <laughs> that was yeah. Bill, Bill, I didn't, I didn't see this picture mm. originally. And so, uh, when Bill tweeted it though, I was like, Ooh. Oh, it's, it's on spacefacts.de and there's actually some, there's mm. a, another photo from EVA where you can see the snag. You can see some of the cables. Like maybe I could figure this out if I had more time to work on it, but just like sitting here clicking around and not doing a bunch of extra Googles. Yeah. I got no clue. I was going to say, if anyone has any other information, I'm interested to know. So thank you in advance okay so right so there was an issue <laughs> after apparently it took data um and it seemed to be good data i was able to find it referenced in some published research uh, although i couldn't actually access the articles themselves but on october 9th so several weeks after the progress had already said goodbye and they had deployed the telescope in the first place they wanted to jettison it and move on with their lives except <laughs> as it was being jettisoned four cables on it managed to snag the uh, docking target at the aft end of salute so the docking target right it's it's this cross that's sitting at the end of a bar that protrudes some number of you know feet maybe a meter or two from the station and so not only was having that snared on there just not good in general, you don't want a thing dangling on your space station, but future progresses wouldn't be able to dock there. Uh, it was obviously blocking the, <laughs> the, the, the docking target as well as just being generally in the way. And so after thinking about what to do, 
for uh, a few days. They came up with the plan where, and, and, and as far as what to do, that included abandoning the station early, right? You've got the two meat bags, but they could just get back into their Soyuz and take off. Instead, they decided to do an EVA, or as uh, they're called in Russian, uh, a VKD, where VKD is just taking extravehicular activity and just directly translating it into Russian, and then those initials become VKD. And so on August 15th, the cosmonauts decided to climb outside and unsnag the antenna. And so uh, the two that were doing this uh, spacewalk were Vladimir Lyakov and Valery Ruman. Uh, this was the third of the six crews that came to visit Salyut 6. And so I guess uh, that's a bit of a spoiler there, too. They were successful <laughs> because they were able to bring more crews to Salyut. And so uh, just some fun uh, history with these cosmonauts. Uh, uh, Ryuman's uh, first mission was actually the first attempt to crew Salyut 6, uh, uh, but it was aborted. They had trouble docking uh, there. That was his first mission. This was his second one, being on orbit at this point. And then uh, he also returned to Salyut 6 the following year, and then actually flew on STS-91 in 1998. So almost 20 years later, he flew on the final uh, shuttle Mir mission. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Valerie Ruman... Uh, had passed away only a few weeks ago. And so, uh, you know, rest in peace. Uh, really, really awesome cosmonaut. And as for Valery Lyakov, this was his first flight. And he uh, also flew to Salyut 7, uh, the next uh, and final uh, Salyut. And uh, he had the distinction of being bracketed by uh, failed missions, one that had failed to dock. The mission before him failed to dock to Salyut 7. And then the mission after him was actually the ground launch escape abort that they had, uh, where the rocket blew up on the pad and the two cosmonauts got yeeted off uh, safely. And so the only time that ever happened uh, on the pad. And so very eventful. And he also ended up going to Mir uh, himself, too. So that was pretty cool. In any event, this was uh, not planned originally, and this would be the third and final uh, spacewalk for Salyut 6. And it was uh, one hour and 23 minutes. They also went and grabbed some experimental cassettes that were out there collecting data and good stuff. And I think they wiped a window from the outside. But ultimately, it was uh, Ryumin taking the lead and having to cut through these one millimeter steel wires that had snagged. And then uh, every time he'd cut one, as you can imagine, there's going to be a little bit of uh, motion with the... Uh, antenna. And so uh, Lyakov's primary role was essentially to keep an eye on the antenna and make sure it wasn't going to come and hit him uh, or, yeah, basically cause any trouble. Or to use the wonderful uh, words at uh, Space Facts, that it wasn't going to smash him. <laughs> and so, uh, but, but yeah, but he was able to cut through all four. He was not smashed on the side of the Salyut. Afterwards, to push it away from their station, they used a 1.5 meter long uh, uh, lever or forked stick, I've heard it described as, to basically, you know, push it away. And that was that. And it worked out. Uh, they, I didn't realize this. They, uh, before the, uh, the, the spacewalk, they would, uh, move all their, I guess, key supplies and their personal effects and things into the Soyuz because if they couldn't re-enter the Salyut, the Soyuz has a hatch that opens outwards, you know, not just the hatch that connects it to the Salyut, but there's also a side hatch. And so they would just need to climb into that side hatch and just abort, uh, abandon the station that way uh, if they were unable to get back in. So I thought that was a pretty interesting contingency that they would do for their spacewalks or VKDs. 
things were fairly uneventful after that. And yeah, this was the first large deployable radio telescope on orbit. Uh, and it has a bit of a le legacy. Um, in uh, in 2011, Spectre-R, if you're familiar with that spacecraft, uh, that's a, a Russian radio satellite that was uh, sent on orbit. And that one had a 10-meter deployable antenna. The geometry looks uh, different. It wasn't hexagonal shaped, but I'm sure there was a lot of tech uh, from the uh, KRT-10 that also went into Spectre-R. Uh, Spectre, uh, the, the R stands for radio in this case. There's, there's a whole bunch of Spectre spacecraft. You might be thinking Spectre-RG where that's the one that has all the drama with Erosita and the German instrument or the German telescope on there as well. Um, in that case, the RG stands for Röntgen Gamma, where Röntgen is in a lot of uh, other languages, uh, the word for x-rays. And so that's why that's the x-ray telescope. This one, though, participated in a very long baseline interferometry, where you, right, you hook up very distant telescopes to radio telescopes to act as a single dish. You get really, really good resolving power. And so VLBI on the Earth is limited to the size of the Earth. Whereas Spectre R was put in a 330, in a very highly eccentric orbit where it was at 338,000 kilometers at apogee. That's what, 10 geosynchronous <laughs> orbits away? And so really, really going out there. So that was very, very long baseline interferometry. And KRT-10, uh, they talked about the idea of having a KRT-30, which would have been a 30-meter dish uh, and would have been carried to orbit by a Buran. But obviously that didn't pan out since it only flew the one yeah. test flight, which is a shame. And yeah, and they, they even talked uh, later about uh, doing what, would, what was called the IVS or the International VLBI Satellite. Where again, that VLBI is very long baseline interferometry when you hook these up. And so this would have been a 25 meter dish and you would have multiple of these uh, dishes in orbit going out to 150,000 kilometers altitude. And from that, again, you could just really expand the envelope of, you know, beyond what you can just do from the earth. And so uh, a really cool uh, piece of spaceflight history, I think, uh, where it's got some drama, uh, but it did some good science, and yeah, it was a big old deployable. Yeah, so th this is interesting. So Russian mm. telescopes in space, like you don't yeah. think about that. No. I only think about, to be honest, I only think about Hubble still, <laughs> like as, as, far, <laughs> as far as the big impressed ones. But this one's pretty cool too, and way back in, like you said, the seventies, which is so it's all it's got a very seventies feel to it, and uh, yeah. ran into some troubles though. But yeah, although I have to. Uh... Always share, since, and I, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but you just made me think of, or I wasn't thinking about this, but um, the Magnum satellites. So that's that's the U.S.'s, you know, top secret. I think it was launched on a shuttle, or at least people speculate it was launched on a shuttle. And this one had a stupid diameter, uh, 100 meters. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. Basically the Green Bank telescope size, but on orbit. And so that clearly had to have been folded and deployed that way. So I'm guessing it's... What was that called? It's called a Magnum. It's a SIGINT spy satellite and there's oh, not much there on it. Oh, there you go. SIGINT. There you go. That's yeah. what... <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So yeah, that was an awesome look into Russian or Soviet era space telescopes. Dennis, so um, next week, the date range for the upcoming uh, This Week in Space Light History is the 5th of July through the 11th of July. And Ben, do you have a clue for us? Yep. Next week in 1966, the clue is if a rocket explodes and no one is there to hear it, 
does it make a sound? So that's the clue. Yeah, I feel like we've been here before, but um, this clue is in reference to a new event that we have not talked about, even if the clue itself is maybe been reused a couple of times. So if you think you know <laughs> what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Let's move on then to upcoming spaceflight events. Lots of launches. I think that these are all launches, actually. Quite a few. Lots of rockets going up this upcoming week. So what's the first one? So first up is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching SES-22. Um, should be a fairly familiar name, just a communication satellite. It's going up to geostationary orbit. Um, this is going to be launching on Wednesday, June 29th at 2104 UTC out of Cape Canaveral, uh, Slick 40. And that booster will be uh, attempting a landing. I mean, at this point, they pretty much got it in the bag. It'll be landing on an ASDS, and this will this will be its second flight. It's a B ten seventy three. All right. Then after that, so this is the maiden launch of Jutre two, which is um a launch vehicle by Landspace. So this is just a test flight. So apparently, they just have a mass simulator or possibly an unknown payload of some sort. But yeah, just a test flight. It'll be lifting off on either June 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern time, if that's where you are, or at midnight uh, UTC. So kind of straddling the uh, time zones there. So it's launching from an unknown pad in Jiuquan, China. So I guess maybe you can't really see much about it, but you know, I'm sure we'll hear about it after it's launched. They, they've even deleted uh, photos of the launch site off of social media. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And then the second of four launches on June 30th <laughs> is a Launcher 1 horizontal launch. And so this is, uh, the name of the mission is Straight Up. That's clever, especially since it's like not. the only type of rocket that doesn't go straight up. <laughs> but, but that's neither here nor there. It's going to be uh, taking the payload STP-28A, where STP is the Space Test Program. Uh, it's basically contracted with U.S. Space Force for the uh, the Rocket Systems Launch Program. And so uh, in any event, there's going to be seven satellites with, uh, you know, coming from multiple government agencies, doing all sorts of neat stuff on there. You can check that out if you want. And so, again, the launch is on June 30th with a window from 0500 to 0900 UTC. And this is, of course, a horizontal, a horizontal launch. And so, you know, it's flown up there and then they release the rocket. And uh, it'll be flying out of the Mojave Air and Spaceport. Okie doke. After that, we've got a PSLV-CA flying uh, DSEO and... Uh, a couple other payloads, uh, New Star, N-E-U, S-A-R, New Star, <laughs> and mm. Scooby, S-C-O-O-B hyphen I, <laughs> uh, kind of a delightful name. And uh, this might also be a good time to mention that the C-A configuration for PSLV means core alone, uh, so no uh, no boosters. The launch time for this, it looks like they've got an instantaneous launch on Thursday, January 30th at 1230 hours UTC. And uh, of course, it's a PSLV, so it's going to be launching out of Sri Harikota in India. All right. And then after that, the fourth launch on June 30th is um, we have an Atlas 5 in the 541 configuration. That's launching U USS F-12. So this is a uh, Space Force payload, and it's actually two national security payloads. Uh, so it's a wide field view testbed satellite. And the second one looks like it is um, a multi-manifest satellite. Yeah, we talked about this last yeah. week. 
that is launching, uh, we think, uh, on uh, June 30th at 2200 UTC to 100 UTC. And I guess we're getting that from a NOTAM because um, the websites themselves that we can check say that it is TBD. But uh, I guess the NOTAM is the most up-to-date information that we have. So um, if it is going to launch, I guess it will be then. And that will be launching from Space Launch Complex 41 at Cape Canaveral. And then finally, rounding things out, if uh, on Independence Day you're barbecuing, uh, keep <laughs> a, keep an eye out. That uh, or just keep really in mind. Good firework. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so there's going to be a suborbital launch, uh, one of three that are taking uh, various science payloads um, to do some studies at X-rays and ultraviolet and different wavelengths. And so this is the second of these three. Just to give you a step back a second, right? You've got these three orbital launches, all from Australia, that uh, NASA has contracted. And on June 26th, uh, the day we're recording this, the X-ray quantum calorimeter uh, was launched from the uh, Arnhem Space Center. This one that I'm talking about for Independence Day is on July 4th, and this is the CISTEEN mission, which stands for the Suborbital Imaging Spectrograph for transition region or radiance from nearby exoplanet host stars. Yikes. Um, it's a payload from the University of Colorado, which is awesome. And uh, in particular, it's going to be looking at UV light from Alpha, uh, from Alpha Centauri A and B, uh, which are two of the th stars in the Alpha Centauri system that we know of. And so again, it's going to launch on July 4th at 10.54 UTC uh, from Australia's Arnhem Space Center. And uh, I guess, yeah, just a uh, to round out those three, uh, the Deuce will be the third of these missions. And so that's going to be July 12th. So I'm sure you'll be hearing about that next episode. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Cool. And with all those spaceflight events, let's now deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Iron Man, Mike, The Greek, Kenton, Leon Running Man, Cy Kyle, Colin, VT, and Chris for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. A quick shout out to our new ADCO level supporter, Theodore Eaton. Thank you. And for more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.